And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. Now, you'll remember last week I spoke to one Bob Calhoun, who goes by the name Count Dante when he's playing with his band, the Black Dragon Fighting Society. But it turns out that he got that name from a person who really existed, a man named John Keehan, who developed his character Count Dante. Actually, it's Count Juan Rafael Dante. And he was a a very polarizing figure in the martial arts world in the 1960s. And we're going to get into a lot of that, but very quickly, he was the first instructor to openly teach black students. Uh, He uh, was arrested for attempting to dynamite a a dojo's front door. Uh, He was part of dojo wars, which went on, uh, you know, Cobra Kai season two style, where uh, he, which ended one such altercation ended in one of his friends dying. Uh, he had a, a pet lion. He was a hairdresser. He worked at a wig, wig shop and he sold toupees. Uh, he was just quite an interesting guy. He even owned a porn shop and sold uh, used cars later on in life. Uh, so this is the guy that we're going to hopefully break down. And because I know a faux Count Dante, he introduced me to a gentleman named Floyd Webb, who has been charged as the documentarian for for Count Dante. And he's chronicled his his exploits in a movie called The Search for Count Dante, which hopefully will come out next year. This is a lot to to really kind of to piece together and also to untangle the narrative threads. But I think Floyd Webb is the guy to do it. Um, And we got to jump right into this because there's so much we've got to cover because this man had his hand in every pot, it seemed like, in the Chicagoland area. Uh, So first of all, Floyd, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, you know, it's funny your last name is Webb um, because you've really kind of have to untangle the web of Count Dante and you've been tasked with that. And yeah, I got to tell you, I don't think there's ever been a stranger topic that I've tried to uncover, especially after looking at this. You know, um, last week I had um, a Count Dante on the show, Bob Calhoun, who took on the, the name uh, Count Dante for his band, Count Dante and the Black Dragon Fighting Society. Wrestled in his name. Yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, you wrestled in his name. That's very good. And, you know, what's what's funny about that is while I was talking to him, you know, he mentioned his kind of run-ins with the actual, the legacy of Count Dante. And, you know, he, he kind of pointed me in your direction. And I'm excited to kind of hear about the real Count Dante. You know, I personally, faux Count Dante is my favorite Count Dante. I don't think real Count Dante and I would have gotten along together very well. But, you know, how did you kind of come across Count Dante as a a subject matter? Because you dove deep in this one. When I was a kid living in the housing projects on 22nd and State Street in Chicago, having moved there with the great migration from Mississippi from the south to the north to work in the stockyards and the steel mills and and in the printing presses and things, I was a, my mother taught me to read when I was three years old. Me and my sister, she, we was, she was three, I was two. By the time we got to school, we were reading, you know, we were reading quote unquote chapter books. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. You guys were, so you guys were reading at like a uh, high school level and going into, into first grade? Well, not high school level, but you know, we could read chapter books. We could read books with chapters and, you know, and like, because my mother started us out in the Bible and the newspaper. Yeah. I, my grandmother was a was trained as a teacher at Tuskegee Institute. So one day I'm talking to my mom, and my mom told me that my grand my great grandfather was a flunky for Booker T. Washington. Get out of here! I said a flunky. <laughs> I said so. I was like, I was a chauffeur or something. I said, what? Yeah, and she said, yeah, he was a flunky. He went around raising money for the school. I said, Mom, that's a fundraiser. <laughs> 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 a little big difference between driving him around and raising money. <laughs> I'm like, 
So he was going around raising money for the university. So I was fascinated by this, you know, and that's how we ended up learning to read. I mean, like, I remember one of the things that happened when we moved from Mississippi, we moved into the projects. Some of the kids told us that we talked like white kids coming from Mississippi. Right. And that was my grandmother made sure that in the house, we, we added our IEGs. We crossed our eyes, we dotted our eyes, crossed our eyes, we dotted our eyes and crossed our T's, you know, and, um, and what that resulted in, all that I dotting and T crossing and then only being able to go out of the house to go to the library, got my eye dotted a lot because <laughs> I books, right? Yeah. And uh-huh. once I got my eye dotted one too many times, I ran across a book by a guy. He did self-defense books. Bruce Tegner. That was my first martial arts book was Bruce Tegner. And I said, hmm, maybe this will help me now. In the meantime, I had been seeing like Spencer Tracy on TV, knocking people out. And everybody used jiu-jitsu and some karate. It was it was mostly judo before the nineteen uh, before nineteen sixty. Mm-hmm, right, right. It was not the striking arts weren't well known at that point. So we, we began to see karate in the spy movies and the James Bond movies and stuff. Right. Now living in the city, I didn't see myself rolling around on the ground. So I wanted something so I could knock a motherfucker out. Right, right. You know, so I'm learning and trying to learn this stuff, and you know, and but the thing about it was you couldn't. It was hard to study. Because the police didn't want black people or Hispanic people learning martial arts. And there was like this unofficial thing where, you know, you just weren't welcome in the traditional martial arts schools. You could learn martial arts at the YMCA, but not, but you couldn't go to the regular karate schools or the judo schools back then. But later I found out that Mas Tamura, who ran the Jiu-Jitsu Institute, took black students, but he got them in kind of underground, right? When the white students would leave in the evening, a bunch of black guys would come in to clean up the dojo. And he would run a class from 10 o'clock till about midnight. And that's how he got away with that. So while you were studying karate, so I imagine you got into this uh, and you famously went to the World Karate Championship in 1964, September 4th. And this is kind of a a red letter day, at least I imagine, in in this particular story. Now, when you went to that, were you participating or were you just spectating? I was 11 years old. We ran into Count Dante putting up posters in Chinatown, but I didn't know who he was. I talked to him on the phone because I wanted to take classes. And I, and I think he even talked to my mom and my mom said, you ain't going over there at 81st and Ashland or someplace, right? Because I had to go through a whole lot of white neighborhoods where you can get your ass whooped or get pulled off the bus even, right? We saw this thing and said, okay, how much does it cost? It was about a dollar or something. I think it was a dollar fifty to get in. So we did our work and, um, and later that day we went off to the tournament. And a tournament was in a place called the Coliseum. And so it was a real coup for Dante to, to pull this, this tournament off at the Coliseum. Because when you walked in, man, it was like uh, like it's like 2,000 people. There. I mean, the place was filled. I've never seen anything like this, man. To be, I mean, this is the first time I got a close-up look at people that were actually studying karate. Up until that point, it, it had been me and my friends in our bedrooms, you know, getting thrown up against the door and having our mothers throw us all right, out. Right, right. <laughs> you know, we got in there, you know, we, we got in there and started acting like, you know, acting like 11-year-old kids do. You know, we were watching stuff and imitating it and going from place to place. And suddenly somebody comes, hey, you kids, what are you doing? And it's this red-haired guy. He was a tall guy, but, you know, he, you know, he was taller than us. He was, looked, looked to be about six foot tall, kind of. You know, you know, well built, you know, well, well, well dressed and well built. You know, he says, what are you guys doing? He says, come over here. And he took us over and set us down in front of the crowd, like on the floor where we could see everything. He says, you want to see stuff? Just sit here. Just stop making a disturbance. Right. And that's what and that's what and that's how it all started. That's how we started seeing him. I guess he he might have remembered us from from Chinatown. Right. Because we were you know, we, we asked him some questions, but I never really thought about it. And I never really thought about it. The only reason I remembered him is because he had this, you know, he had this red hair and this little go- goatee. Look, he looked like Steve Reeves. From the Hercules movie. What's great about that story is that you actually met Count Dante, right? Like rarely do people who are researching or documenting a particular figure, do they get to meet the guy? And you were there. You got to meet him. I mean, you caused trouble and he he basically disciplined you by by in, in a very positive way by make, allowing you to sit down and watch everything up close. 
Uh, and I think that that's, I mean, that, that's just such a great story. And one thing, uh, you know, we're going to dive into Count Dante in a second, but the other thing that I think is important, it was, um, you know, it was really kind of coming into the mainstream in the 60s. I mean, Elvis studied karate. I mean, that was in the 70s, and Elvis is who inspired Bob Calhoun to take up the mantle of, of his foe, Count Dante. But it was coming into the mainstream through through films, right? From, from the end of, from like, during World War II, Spencer Tracy was doing jiu-jitsu, you had, like I said, the t- TV shows, you know, The Saint, uh, Secret Agent Man or Danger Man, as it was called, with Patrick McGowan. Then the man from Uncle came along, you know. And uh, this is all, this is like 15 years before Kung, Kung Fu even. Uh, this is yeah, this is all t- 10 years before the TV show Kung, Kung Fu, right? This, uh, you know, this is at a period when when Bruce Lee first comes to America, like you know, or the second time he comes in 1959, and Cal Dante claims he met Bruce Lee before that in the 1950s, James M. Lee was selling these books in the science magazines, in Popular Science Magazine, in, in, in Popular Mechanics, Iron Hand and Poison Hand manuals, right? And Dante, and, and I'm pretty sure Dante had to see this because I think he tracked James M. Lee down. Right, because all of the all of the breaking techniques he had came right out of James Yimley's book. So let, let's 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 just quickly summarize Count Dante's early life because I think this is really interesting. So Count Dante, which I believe the full thing is Count Juan Rafael Dante, and his real is John Timothy Kean. John Timothy Kean. He, he's an Irish kid with rosy with rosy red cheeks. He's a ginger. Right. <laughs> he's a ginger. You know. Yeah. And that's what he was when I met him. He was a ginger. That's the reason I didn't know him when I saw him years later. You know, he's a ginger because he went from being a ginger to being like a, a black exploitation movie character. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a great point because John Keehan is the guy. That's the man. And then as we see later on, Count Dante is the character he creates, really. Count Dante is his alter ego. Count Dante is part of his spiritual transformation. And he becomes this, he becomes this character. He's fascinated. His spiritual, he had a spiritual teacher, a guy by the name of Michael Bertio, who was from the OTA. He was from, uh, uh, it's funny, Dante's uh, trained as a classical singer. Get out of here. Okay, if you can believe that. And in the and the building where he took his music lessons was an organization called the OTA. It was, it was in a cult organization. And it was like sort of, uh, they had been, uh, they, they were aligned to Aleister Crawley, right? But they... But, but they rejected Aleister Crowley because he was a racist and a Nazi. I believe this you is know? the same group that Jack Parsons was a part of yes, here in is. Los Angeles because yes. I did a whole episode on Jack Parsons, and that sounds very familiar. Yes, it is. The same organization. Okay. But, but, but Michael Bertiol and these guys, they did something very different. They eliminated Aleister Crowley from it for his Nazism and his racism and incorporated Haitian voodoo into what they did. Oh, yeah. You, you can look at Michael Bertio. He's on the Internet. Uh, he did a Gnostic voodoo Bible, you know, and uh, he was Dante's spiritual teacher. And he's the one who filled me in on Dante's transformational desires and, you know, and like what he and what he was trying to accomplish in his spiritual world, in his spiritual life and him being consecrated as a priest of uh, voodoo sex magic, voodoo sex magic, not voodoo. Voodoo is a Hollywood invention. He went from being John Keehan to Count Dante in this series of sessions with, you know, uh, being counseled by Michael Bertio, you know, and um, and he and he and he did so many things because he was rich. He could do anything he wanted to, you know. Uh, while he was John Keehan, he trained. I, I mean, now he was rich. I want to point this out. He was rich because his family was rich. His dad was a gynecologist. His mom was a socialite. First generation immigrant from Ireland. They became doctors. The men became doctors, and the women became nuns. Right, right. All the men were doctors, and the women became nuns. Right. And if they did, didn't marry somebody, they they became nuns. You know, to, to the point that Dante, before he died, was talking about becoming a priest. Wow. You, you know. You know, because of that that Irish Catholic up, upbringing, you know, but but Dante uh, was sent to a a Catholic boys' school called Mount Carmel on sixty fourth and Dante. I just want to point that out. Yeah, on sixty fourth and Dante, right? Um, and it's right near the boxing gym, also. So he spent a lot of time in that in that in that changing neighborhood, that neighborhood that went from 
that went from white in the 1930s to totally black in the 1960s, right? And so he knew everybody over there because he, you know, because he had to, you know, he he uh, he lived in in Beverly, which was a long way away, and he had to take this long trip from Beverly, and he got to know people. He he went to all the clubs, you know, so a lot of the bouncer trained at the trained at the gyms, so he could get into the clubs because he knew the bouncers and things, you know, and um, and even with him working at Playboy, working as a hairdresser for Playboy bunnies, Hugh Hefner lived in the neighborhood and frequented and frequented the same clubs. Not only that, he was familiar with the people who formed the Blackstone Rangers. You know, because I found out from some people that when the Blackstone Rangers first formed as a not-for-profit organization and they got money to have a little, little cultural center, John was hired to teach martial arts. And that was one of the things that people condemned him for, for teaching martial arts to these gangbangers. But they weren't gangbangers when they started the school, when they, they started the, uh, the uh, community center. That evolved as a result of, of the Jim Crow racism in Chicago and in the country. Because they started as a social organization and the social organization started to protect the community. And you know how it goes. Then you fall down, you know, you fall down a little well and next thing you know, you know, you're shaking people, you know, you're shaking people down for protection. It's a slippery slope. (laughs) Yeah, but it's a whole lot more complicated than that. You know, that's a story in itself. But yeah, so key. And so so this is the experience key came out because every time I talk to people when I first got into things, they were like, I, I just didn't know how he knew all these black people. I didn't, I didn't know how he knew. You know, John Key and Count Dante is a different thing to every person you talk to because nobody ever knew the full 360-degree John Key. When I started asking questions about him, the only thing I could find out is the first thing I wanted to do when I started the project, and we'll talk about how I started the project, I wanted to find the person who whooped his ass. Mm-hmm. The one who just, you know, the one who could tell me, yeah, I whooped his ass all up and down the street. Yeah. Nobody in Chicago ever told me that. All the big, tough martial artists, nobody ever told me that they whooped his ass, right? Uh, when I finally found somebody, um, Ken Knudsen, who was a championship uh, sport karate guy, you know, they, these are all point point guys, right? You know, they they, uh, they fought point. You know, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was sport karate. I said, so did you or anybody you know ever fought Count Dante? He says, I said, well, I said, was Count Dante a good fighter? He says, how would you know? Now, here's the other thing you have to remember, too. When I talked to these guys like Ken Newton, who were older than me, but they were still they still entered martial arts after what, like five years, six, seven, eight years behind Count Dante. So by the time a lot of people got into martial arts, Kean had already been in martial arts for t- 10 years. You know, I mean, he started at the Jiu-Jitsu Institute. He got karate from a Kyuko Shinkai guy. Uh, that had lived in Japan. Dante's karate background is, is like really checkered because he was like a martial arts buff. When he was in, the, he went into the Marine Reserve. How did he get into the Marine Reserve? Well, it has to do with what happened to him in high school. He got kicked out of Mount Carmel High School. He had a boxing match with one of the teachers because one of the teachers didn't get along with him, probably because of his relationships and the people he he knew in in the neighborhood of black people, and they have a little room in the high school where the priest and the students can settle their differences. Sounds pretty Irish. Yeah, very, very Irish. From what somebody told me, it sounded like Kean took advantage of the situation because he was well-trained. Um, and he ended up thrown out of Mount Carmel, and, and I think he graduated from, like, Inglewood. Well, now, now, I want to pause for a second, because he was well-trained because he was taking boxing with Johnny Colson um, right. in his gym that was just right next to the to the school that he could afford because uh, Colson was, a bat, as you mentioned, a Batum um, world champion, and he was great. And, you know, I think in one of the articles it mentioned he was a showman, and he was also taking on all comers at carnivals. He had a kind of a very P.T. Barnum kind of flair mm-hmm. to him, which probably influenced John Keehan. To when he was creating Count Dante, and he was best friend Jack Johnson. Yeah, Jack Johnson as well. Yeah, yeah. And he trained Jack Johnson, which means what? Count Dante's boxing lineage goes back to Jack Johnson. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. It's <laughs> pretty cool. Interesting. Well, it's great lineage. I mean, it tells you how well trained he was, and then you know, as you mentioned, he took advantage. So he ends up in the military, and this is kind of where, to me, the story 
becomes a little muddled because he's traveling around the world. Um, I was reading, I think, in one of the Black Belt articles. I'm going to try to put these on the website if I can. There's there's three great articles from the 60s and the 70s. But Count Dante basically, in his own words, in this interview, he says that he was going around go, trying to be in death matches. And he was learning. He says he didn't take on any instructors, but that he learned all sorts of martial arts. You know, I think I have a list here. Um, you know, Aikido, Judo, Jiu-Jitsu, Hapkido, Taekwondo, Tang Sudo, um, Thai and Chinese boxing. He's claiming that he's learning all this stuff. But it wasn't in a structured setting. It wasn't like he has a black belt in every one of these. But he was kind of gathering it all and claiming to be in death matches in China and Thailand. Uh, this is kind of the, you know, this is the fuzzy part for me. And I'm wondering if you were able to untangle, you know, separate fact from fiction when it comes to him doing all the stuff while he's in the military. Oh, I can't. No, I can't. If it's possible, right. We, we only have those claims, right? I don't anybody. I don't know anybody who went with him. I know people who went with him to Canada. I know people who went with him to New York to be in the first uh, uh, Masoyama tournament in 1961 at Madison Square Garden. Uh, I talked to a guy who claimed that he knocked Count Dante out. He said, I asked him about Count Dante. He said, Count Dante, he's count out. I fought him and I did a flying kick and knocked him out in 15 seconds. But it was a no contact tournament. So, so he would have been disqualified, right? Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a cheap shot. But all that, you know, cheap shots seem to be the hallmark of Count Dante's history, but we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, well, there's no cheap, no, 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 see, no, see, see, here's, see, here's where the thing comes in. They say Count Dante was never in, was never a fixture in tournaments that he wasn't tough. You have to talk to people on the street about this guy, right? You talk to his lawyer, John, uh, John Cooley, Dante hung out on Rush Street, which was the, which was like the main hangout for the Chicago outfit. Right. Dante would not run away from a fight when in his in his prime. You know, I don't know what happened towards the end of his life. I don't know what he might have been like at that point. Right. But in his early years, everybody you talked to who hung around him and who studied with him said that this was one tough cookie. Right. That he was his uh, his technique was was excellent. You know, Um but the way he trains his students, they had a bar. Uh, they had a bar in the dojo that they had in order for people to practice fighting in bars, you know. And they would drink and get drunk yeah. and defend themselves, right? You, I've had some of some of the, the old students tell me that you couldn't get a black belt from John if you couldn't defend if you couldn't win a bar fight. Well, you know, what's funny about that, and, and just, I want to pause here for a second. So anyone listening who's trying to get a sense of who this guy was, John Keehan, if you've ever seen Karate Kid or have watched Cobra Kai, the series, he's John Kreese. He is the bad guy sensei. I mean, it is no mercy. Your enemy deserves, you know, he, if he is your enemy, you must do win at all costs kind of a thing. Um, he was starting dojo wars. I mean, this is really the mentality. I'm just trying to people get people to understand the mentality of what you're going into, you know, what, what, what he was. And I think you're exactly right that that's probably a very effective way to fight. But one of his classic moves was monkey takes a peach or whatever. Um, and that's like grabbing a guy by the, by the, you know, the, the, the John Thomas and, and tugging. I mean, that's, that's not exactly, it's dirty fighting. I mean, most people would unanimously say that that's dirty fighting. All fighting is dirty fighting. If you're going to win, all fighting is going to be dirty fighting. There is no, there is no clean way to win a fight. Well, I, I completely disagree, but, but yeah. For people that have had to fight the way that some of us have had to fight, it ain't about, it's about getting away. And sometimes it's, it's about getting away alive. You know, see, when I went into martial arts, it wasn't for trophies and all that stuff. It was because I was getting my eye dotted, getting my ass kicked because of my love of books. Right. And I was like, let me serve some of this up myself. But the thing that I discovered was that I didn't like doing that kind of shit. I don't like hurting people. You know, the first time I literally broke somebody's jaw, I felt really bad about it because I was like, yeah, I wanted to stop the guy from hitting me, but I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to break anything. No, I, listen, I, I agree with you. And and I would say that you and P, I mean, P, I was in that same situation. I mean, you, there's, you, you, you don't have um, a monopoly on that situation. And, and I, I agree. If you're in a situation where someone is coming at you, 
then yeah, maybe win it all, win it all costs, whatever. But that the win, that's that word, win it all costs, right? It wasn't like John Keehan was minding his own business on the side of the street. He was, you know, he was going after other dojos. He was the aggressor. He was the bully. And during that, using using dirty tactics like p- cheap punching people, hitting people in the eye, like when the famous dojo war that we'll get to. No, you, no, 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 no. Come on. No, this isn't. No, this ain't true. Are you are you a Count Dante apologist? I mean, come on, this is this is this is. I'm not a Count Dante apologist. I saw the I saw the police report. Okay, I saw the police report. Well, so so what I'm saying is on the book that he sold. So he you know he became famous for putting out articles and advertisements in, in Marvel Comics, uh, the deadliest, right. the world's deadliest fighting secrets. This is how most people know who he is. Dante apologist. How in dare that, you? Well, hey, I'm calling like I see it in that book. <laughs> I've got, I'll put up a great website, a, a great YouTube video where someone got a copy of the book. So I haven't actually, I, I had never seen the book before. But in that book, I mean, you're talking about strikes that are eye gouges, ripping people's lips off. This is poison hand. I understand, but most people, if you're in an honorable fighting system, you're not kicking people. I think you can agree as as a man, I think we can talk man to man, kicking a guy in the balls is not, that, that's not considered to be What's honorable, honorable fight. fight. Re- really? You think that's all right? See, I don't know. See, I think I think that's a rather pretty bourgeois definition. Look, man, I'm talking about people that will whoop your ass and stomp you when you get on the ground. All I'm asking, no, I'm asking you, if 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 someone were to come up and, and you're in a fight with someone and the first thing they do is kick you in the balls. There's a great King of the Hill about this where Bobby Hill starts kicking everyone in the balls, walking around town like he's tough. And his dad's like, you can't do that. That's that's that is a, that is a line you do not cross. And that's not monkey catching a peach where you're ripping it off. Nobody's kicked me in the ball since I was eight years old, okay? And I didn't know what it meant. But do you think I ever got kicked in the balls again after that? No. Because once you feel it, and once you know that that's a move that people... See, it depends on the environment that you come from. You know, like, you know, like fighting is not a structure. You know, when I was getting my ass kicked for reading books, there was no structure or there was no rules to this. They did what they could get away with until I made it so that they couldn't get away with it, Right? And what would I was and what would I do? You know, it's like I didn't. You know, I just got very formal and and I would do and I would hit people with things that they had never seen before, like a roundhouse kick. You know, a roundhouse kick to the jaw was pretty effective. You know, because they'd never seen it. But once they'd seen it, I couldn't. I could never do it again. Your tactics are changing. Your tactics are changing on based on who your opponent is, right? You know, and some people will pull a knife out, right? So it's like how quickly, you know, like. I, I don't like to fight. I never like to fight because you don't know what that person's going to go to next. You know, the thing you can do is end the stuff quickly, make up with the guy and go off and not have a vendetta hanging over you where somebody's going to knife you in the back one day. No, that's fair. Look, here, here's what I will say, and I can let the audience decide. Uh, Count Dante <laughs> is the poison hand. Um, he definitely taught people how to rip people's balls off, poke them in the eye, uh, gouge them in rip the face ears. and in the mouth. Don't forget the ears. <laughs> and the ears. And that that was his technique. That was the system he developed, the Dante system. I'm still curious how he got his name. Well, that Dante system that he developed is based on is based on uh, Chinese Kimpo. Okay. Uh, Old Dance of Death is a monkey dance from Okinawa Tei that was taught by uh, by um, uh, by uh, Ed Parker in the American Kimpo system. He was adapting all this stuff to the American Kimpo system. So Dante had basically seen this stuff. He studied Demak, or uh, he studied Demak with a James Lee guy in in Chinatown. He paid him a lot of money. But he never finished a class because he went out and did this book real quickly. Now, let me pause you. So Dim Mock is the idea. It's the touch of death, uh, this idea that's popularized where it's like a one hit kill punch or, um, you know, a very strong punch. It, it was popularized a lot, at least in modern times, in Kill Bill, the five point right. exploding fist, which is th- that that point in the movie made me hate that movie. I didn't like it up until that point, but it is utterly ridiculous. Uh, but you, what, what you're talking about is what is a, a quote unquote real technique. I don't think it's ever actually been. Uh, I don't think you can kill anybody with it, but it's this is the technique you're talking about. Well, no, no, no you can kill people with it, but it's basically nerve strikes. Right. Yeah. 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 It's based on it's 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 uh, it's based on. It's based on all the points along the human meridian, the same as acupuncture yep, yep, points, yep. right? And those corresponding acupuncture points, right? And and all of these sensitive 
sensitive areas of your body, like the solar plexus, you know, uh, there's, you know, there's just different places if you know how to hit them. You know, and, I mean, like the solar plexus is like, it's probably the one that's really most effective, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, car- the, uh, carotid o- uh, arteries on both sides of the neck, yeah. you know, yeah. cutting, cutting off the, uh, you know, you re- you remember in the movies, like the, uh, karate chops to yes. the neck and you and it instantly knocks yeah. you out. Usually a flying karate you know? chop, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then found out, yes. and found out the hard yeah. way, right? Yep. <laughs> what the result is. And so it's, um. So it's based on that. And, and Demac is a real practice. It's a real practice and a real t- uh, science. But what people forget about or that they don't get taught is that it's also a healing art, too. Demac is also a healing art because as you can, as you can hurt, you can also heal. Yin and yang. That's, that's the yin and yang of it, right? So Dante used this as a, it was a marketing tool to like spread his name because he wanted to get in the movies. That I believe. So he puts, well, yeah, I, I mean, uh, did I show you, show you his, uh, he had a uh, variety uh, magazine ad of him, you know, advertising himself like movies. No, but I would love to have that and put it up. I was taking some of these front page articles. I think the, the, the photos that you've acquired are just amazing. In the 60s, he had kind of a revolution, right? So and I want to start in 65. So 1965. Um, this is what he was kind of starting these these dojo wars. Uh, this was, I mean, it was very much like 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 Cobra Kai season two. This is why I couldn't stand the Cobra Kai the TV show because I didn't think it was real. I didn't think people actually went and fought with other dojos. And Count Dante, John Keehan at this point, proved me wrong. Um, but in 1965, he's he tried to blow out the window of a rival school with a dynamite cap. It wasn't a rival school. Well, weren't all schools rival schools to him? It was a school where he taught classes. Him and Gene Weicker, he taught karate at Gene Weicker's school. Gene Weicker was a martial arts school. They did judo and karate. They were in a tournament together, right? They went in on the tournament together, and Gene Weicker owed him money. John and his friend got drunk. You know, John came out of the military. He had a lot of explosives and things. You know, he had, had dynamite caps and things. And, and driving back and forth to Trieste School out in Arizona, they used to stop along the way when they were drunk and blow up cactuses and shit with these, with, with, with these dynamite caps. You know, you know, like you know, like like all American boys, you know, we like to see, you know, we like to blow up shit, see it go boom. I don't think we use dynamite, but I know what you're saying. It wasn't dynamite; it was blasting caps. He never dynamited any place, right? He never dynamited. I mean, I got the FBI report. He never blew up anything. Matter of fact, they didn't even, they weren't, they were too drunk to light the fuse. The cops came along when they were lighting, trying to light the fuse. They tried to get away. They stopped them and found all these dynamite caps in the trunk of the car. They investigated them and found out they had nothing to do with the mob and they, and they were cleared. I think they, they got pro, pro, probation. I, I talked to, you know, I, I never talked to John about it because he was dead, but I talked to his partner about it. Look, I, I mean, what I'm saying is, if it wasn't a stick of dynamite, it was definitely a cap that goes on a stick of dynamite. It was a dynamite cap. Yeah. So, I mean, now we're, we're just splitting hairs here, really. I mean, his the, the, the goal, the intention was to blow up, to blow out the window of a, of a, of a school, of a guy he owed, that owed him money. I mean, we can sugarcoat it any way you want, but, and he didn't light the fuse and it didn't go off, right? Like, I just did an interview about a woman who joined the IRA, hijacked the helicopter, and threw out... Um, these giant canisters that were meant to blow up a police precinct. Now, the, 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 the bombs didn't go off when they fell out of the helicopter, so the precinct didn't get blown up, so she didn't get charged with murder. But at the end of the day, the intention was to blow up a police station. His intention was to blow off the door, the window, do structural and, and property damage to a school. Right. So, you know, let's call it, let's call a spade a spade here. But not to hurt anyone, he was blowing up property. Sure, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's correct. That's a great distinction. That's important. So let's, so let's be clear on that. We can talk to people. They have the, you know, they they have the whole movie scenario thing where he's gonna blow up the whole school just like the, just like the Japanese went up and, and like killed everybody in Bruce Lee's school in um, in Fury. No, 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 it's not like that. But I mean, what I'm saying <laughs> is that he's still using a dynamite adjacent accoutrement to to cause property damage. It was at night, okay. But this is who this guy is. It's the Chicago. Let's just say it's the Chicago way. <laughs> sure, I, I'm just trying to paint a picture of, of who of who he is 
um, from his actions that are that are publicly available. So that's in 1965, and that's a great prequel to what's going to happen later on. But 1967, it seemed like this was this was really his big year uh, for John Keehan because he changes his name in this year. Although there was some distinction on whether or not his leak, the change to Count uh, Juan Rafael Dante was legitimate or not. Um, but he claimed, and you know, you brought up an interesting point that I'd never heard before. But he claimed that his parents fled the Spanish Civil War and that he had noble heritage. But I mean, obviously, he was Irish and from, a, I think his dad was from Ireland, a first, a first uh, generation immigrant. Uh, his mom is the, is the case in question. I see. Okay. Okay. Where his mom was from, right? As far as I can tell, his mom was not Irish. She was a socialite. She was in all the newspapers back in the back in the forties and early fifties. But she is, and I think she might have been French Canadian or something, or she might have been Canadian. She might have had some foreign. She she might have had some some other foreign heritage for him to claim that. But at the same time, Juan Rafael Dante, the whole thing in talking to talking to Michael Bertio, was that Dante was a character, along with the Count of Monte Cristo, along with Steve Reeves. These were all characterizations that the characters, the ideas of these characters appealed to him, and he pursued those characters. Well, he wore, I think you, you mentioned he wore a cape, and he had a pimp cane with like a lion's head. Uh, he had a new beard. He with a lion's head, and he had a pet. North African lion. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, how could I forget the lion? Right, <laughs> right. The, the lion lived. The lion lived in the dojo. That's insane. But this is like the year it happened, sixty-seven. This is when he's creating this guy that we're going to eventually see on these advertisements. Well, he had a couple of lions. So, so, so he had the lions early on. He had lions like sixty-four, sixty-five. He had. I think he had. He had lions until like he had to give his lion away. Because a lion bit the mayor of, of like one of these little towns, and the lion had also bit some people out on Oak Street Beach, and the lion was just getting a little out of hand, and he ended up selling the lion to a guy who had a car dealership out in the burbs. Actually, I found the lady who had the lion, and she's got pictures. Uh, and I believe it's this year that he's let's see, August first, nineteen sixty-seven. I have that he was named the world's deadliest fighting master by the World Federation of Fighting Arts. Well, he ran it, so no surprises there. <laughs> um, he, I think that same year he promoted an event where he could, he would have a bull that could be killed in one punch. I think that was still 1967. No, that was earlier. That was earlier on. That was in 64, 65. I think he did it more than once. Okay. Uh, Art Rapkin was one of the students who was supposed to kill the bull. Right. But what they would do is what actually happened to Masoyama. In 1951, when he came to Chicago to kill a bull, and when Masoyama was going to kill the bull, the ASPCA showed up and said, you ain't killing no bull. That's that's cruelty to animals. So Dante, once he used that to get people to fill up the stadium, and then they would report, oh, the ASPCA, they said, we can't kill the bull because it's cruelty to animals, and thank you very much for coming. Here's the rest of our show. True bait and switch, by the way. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be accused of a bait and switch, so we have to talk about the dojo wars that Keehan was involved in in the 60s and culminating in 1970. Right. What's so fun about this is, like as I mentioned before, um, I I watched Karate uh, Cobra Kai Season 2. I thought it was utterly ridiculous. Just I couldn't watch it because I did not believe people actually were that dojos fought each other or were rivals. But it turns out that, you know, for better or for worse, this was going on. And, you know, 1970 is this big incident. But if you can just tell me a little bit about like a little prequel, a little prologue to how this incident in 19, April 24th, 1970 started and then what happened. Mm-hmm. OK, hold on again. Ask me that question one more time, because because I'll tell you what I just what just distracted me. I just signed a deal to finish the uh, Count Dante project. <laughs> well, that's uh, look at that on the phone with me. And and they were asking me where they where I wanted the check sent. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that is, hey, if that's the I love that that distraction happened on this show. I'm like, what the hell? You know how long I've been trying to get this thing get this thing done, man. It's been you know it's been 15 years, and and somebody finally comes along, and not only do they come along, they do the right thing. It's called work, workaholic TV. Oh, workaholic productions, you know, and we're, we're going to have fun with this, right? Because this is, uh, it's really about how we perceive the world and things that we're exposed to, you know, and what made a character like Count Dante exist. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, there's so many different angles you can take on this particular guy. I mean, he's, he's very odd. So the, the question I asked was, 
Um, you know, when it comes to the Dojo Wars, April 24th, 1970, uh, you know, there's if you can give me a quick rundown of the prologue, like what kind of led up to this event and then what actually transpired. First thing, Count Dante and the Green Dragon Society were friendly for years. Now, let me pause. Let me just clarification. So the Black fi- Black Dragon Fighting Society was Count Dante's group. The Green Dragon Fighting right. Society was the gr- the other group in this story. Right. But they were called something else before that. They were called the Ian Tuvik School. Right. And the Ian Tuvik School became the Green Dragon Society. And it was the, and, and the Green Dragon Society had several schools. And I have been led to believe that Count Dante might have been in business with the Green Dragon Society at one point. Right. Um, because because Kean put money into different schools. You know, he helped people start schools. You know, he helped them with money. I mean, he was a real businessman when he when it came came to this stuff. But something happened in the course of all of, you know, in the course of all this, a conflict came about. Uh, Dante had started studying with James Lee in Chinatown and written this book. And he put these ads out. There these ads are in, he put the ads in boxing magazines. He put them in Popular Science, Popular Mechanics, put them in Black Belt Magazine. And the logo he used in the, in the, in the, uh, one of the popular science magazines, or, or, or maybe it was Popped Mechanics, was a logo that the Green Dragon Society was using. Now, I've been able to ascertain that this is where a lot of this stuff begins, is in the use of this, this logo, right? The other thing is there was a generational change within the martial arts systems because Dante had been in, Dante and the other guys had been in martial arts for, you know, over 10 years at that point. Now we got a new group of kids come along at the Green Dragon Society, and this rivalry starts because Dante's the old man who talks a lot of shit, supposed to be real tough. And you, you, you know how it is. Every generation wants to make their mark. So they decide, So they, they try to make their mark with Dante. And Dante shows up, you know, um, they get in an argument, and this argument I thought was over a woman, it most likely was over this, this, this logo. He shows up with uh, Jim Konsevic, who is one of his best friends and who's a do or die kind of dude. Right. He's like, hey, I'm on. I'm up for whatever. Yeah. He, he seemed like he was, uh, I think, animalistic and a brute is kind of how he was described. Uh, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've talked to his cousin who told me about the aftermath of his death. And I talked to him in the film about that. Right. About, you know, about. uh about about what Jim might have been up to, and uh, and 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 he was very honest with me about what Jim might have been up to. Jim was, you know, um, Kean could be a bad influence when he wanted to be, and um, you know he had people going down to South America to work as mercenaries, all this kind of stuff, you know, um, and um, so Jim went up in this place, and it's like how you go. I mean, like. Green Dragon Society, man, they had weapons all they had weapons all over the wall on both sides of the room. According to um, Michael Felkoff, who was a friend of Count Dante's, he wasn't a student of Count Dante's, but 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 he was a friend. Uh, Mike Felkoff worked with the with the Shotokan people, with the uh, J- Japanese Karate Association. And, and, and he also, he and Jim Kosovic, along with three of Jim's students, are the ones who went to the Green Dragon fi- Fighting Society. Mike Felkoff was invited by both people in order to be sort of a referee to make to make sure that nobody got hurt. He showed up late. He he showed up like almost five minutes late. Right. They had gone in already, according to him and according to the police report. Right. He was not part of the initial fight. He came in the room and somebody attacked him as soon as he walked in, walked into into the room. Nobody broke the door down. They opened the door. They said that uh, they claimed Dante had a badge, you know, you know, they, they claimed he had a badge. See, here's the thing about the Green, the Green Dragon Society. The Green Dragon Society was host to a lot of cops, a lot of cops, state policemen. They trained a lot of security people, you know, so they were able to say whatever they wanted to about Dante, basically, you know. And like I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. All I know is what happened in the aftermath. And that is the case was dropped. A homicide case was dropped. And the person and the person who was accused of killing Jim Konsevic took the took the uh, he took the heat for somebody else. 
because he was a student and he took uh, he took the heat for the instructor. So we don't know who's who or who did what, really. Well, I will say there's definitely several because the, the story you just told me is in direct opposition to what I read in several in several articles, including I think the to, including the black belt um, article. None of these people, none of these people saw the police report. None of these people talked to anybody who was really there. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, we're talking about an event that nobody saw. That only what nine people saw, right? And if you go to a, if you go to a place with three with six guys looking for trouble, come on, man. I talked to somebody. I talked to two people who were there. Matter of fact, I'm almost in contact with the people that was, I talked to. The guy who was accused of it. he's still alive. The person who was accused of killing Kansovic. First of all, Dante was accused of the murder of Kansovic under the Accountability Act. His lawyer had to deal with that. There's a knife. There's there, you know there's all of this evidence and things. See 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 people talk all this shit, but they haven't done the research. Oh my God! I'm sounding like a QAnon person. Do your research. <laughs> uh, uh, here's what here's what here's what I'm saying. When it comes to this story, right? And, and you look at you look at Dante's history. He's he's not a guy who's going to go in and say, "Hey, you know what? I really don't like you using my logo. Let's talk this out." Right? He went there. He went. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. He went there with 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 a guy that he knows is rowdy rowdy. Right? He knows he's going with with a, with a guy he knows is going to get the job done. He's going with three other people. They're going to. They're, they went to the Green Dragon Society looking for trouble, and they found trouble. And then when it was all said and done, they said, oh, hold on, what, 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 what do you mean? We didn't do anything wrong. And he had a mob lawyer defend him who claims, you know, I mean, it doesn't look good. And this is coming, you know, when you look at his history, he's not, he's not the guy who's like looking <laughs> yeah, to... You put it like that. Yeah, that's what I'm trying like to say. That, it it, it's, you know. The whole thing was mis- The whole thing was misadventure. Well, we got to say what happened, by the way. So what happened is they get into they get into a fight. Jim Kosovic, um, depending on there's definitely different ways. At the end of the day, he gets stabbed in the neck with a with a sword or a spear, depends on which account you read. Um, and he dies about twenty feet from the front door. I've got a picture of the weapon that 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 killed him. They they had all that stuff in the newspaper. So that's what happens. That's the murder we're talking about. There was a man who died after uh, and as a result of this melee um, that that Keenan incited it's like in 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 any bar fight you can never tell you'll never know how it really started right felkoff doesn't know how the fight started felkoff was attacked when he came through the door the fight had got on the fight started within a minute of them going through that door and what happened to cause that nobody knows right the, the people who were there don't, don't even all they know is the fight started there were like 20 people in the place and the bulk of them ran out the front and back door, and left and left uh, and, and left a core group of people in there fighting. And the fight didn't last but two or three minutes. It did. I don't even think it lasted two two minutes. Well, let, let, so let me ask you. Let me ask you a question though. Since you've done all the research, let me ask you a straight up question. Do you think that Keenan Keehan went there to solve this amicably? I think he went there to do his usual braggadocio thing and to have these guys back down like a lot of people did. And it was a miscalculation on his part because he was these were young guys who didn't give a crap about who Count Dante was or anything. And they were also pissed off because because he had usurped their logo. Right. And these guys, the Green Dragons man, were like, you know, these were some I mean, this is a you know, you didn't want to mess around with Green Dragon Society. My instructor man told me not to one of my friends that I was in class with. uh, my 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 first instructor's name was Gregory Jaco. His uh, his son is Lupe Fiasco. Lupe was you know Lupe grew up in this world, right? And um, and and they told me, man, uh, not to mess around with the Green Dragons. Matter of fact, he said, don't mess around with the Black Dragon Society either, because somebody was going to get killed because of the animosity that had grown between them. You know, so basically, being you know like I'm like 15 or 16 at this time, and yeah, I'm. You know, I'm I'm pretty much staying away from that. Plus, you know, we're in the middle of a. Plus, we remember what what else is going on in the world. We're in the middle of the civil rights movement. It's the beginning of the Black Panther Party. All of this. Fred Hampton is killed February fourth before this thing happens. You know, and and like Keen was tied up in the 1968 convention and all this stuff, right? So there's all of these things going around, so that 
so that like I'm outside of that world at that particular time when all of this animosity is growing. So when this thing happens uh, in April, you know, this is this is like less than five months after Fred Hampton is dead. This shit doesn't make sense to me at all. Right. And like and 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 like and for me to believe that this is the same John, the same rosy red cheek, ginger headed John Keen that I met in 1964 was just uh, just like unfathomable, you know, to see something like this happen. Now we had all been in fights. I mean, the whole way that I ended up getting uh, getting known to Fred Hampton was through a fight that me and my Explorer Post had with with like 25 people out in Maywood, you know which made us prime candidates for the Black Panther Party. But I was on curfew, so I couldn't go anyplace. You know what I mean? I was 14. You couldn't after 10 you couldn't be out you couldn't be out after 10:30. You know, when when you were 14 years old when I was growing up. And everything took place in Chicago, you know, so we didn't get involved. I mean, not like that. I helped to the breakfast for children's program and stuff, but you know, but like I wasn't a major, you know, and and I was doing martial arts and I was going to the south side and things, and this one friend of mine was—he uh, was—he was in the Blackstone Rangers, and he was—and and that's how he got to train with Count Dante because he was in the Blackstone Rangers, and so he was learning Dimmock, and he was—you know—he was—you know—he—he was the first person I ever saw do the dance of death. He's now in prison for life right now for something he may or may not have done. It's probably he didn't do it because he just got caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Likely story, I know everybody says it. Um, but that's but but uh, but it's 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 true though. I mean, uh, I don't think he did the thing that they said he did because it just didn't fit who he was. But he had the gang tattoos and everything, so that's what happens to you. Uh, look, I agree. I mean, look, here's here's the thing. I mean, with with this particular heist, I mean, at the end of the day, what we can say is that this definitely tarnished the rest of his martial arts career. Um, I mean, he was tied, you know, we don't have time to get into the, the 1974 Chicago per later vault robbery, which is the thing he was tied to, um, at least in rumor, not necessarily, there wasn't any hard evidence, um, but that was a very interesting thing. But he dies in... In 1975, two interesting things here. He dies from a from an ulcer, basically, and I, I'm guessing it's from the death matches or all the all the crap that he started uh, during his life. Um, but one of the things that I thought was interesting is that he had a wife who didn't like the death certificate. When when did he get? That's the only time I've ever heard of him having a wife being mentioned. Uh, yeah, that was Krista Dante. He met her. She was working in a modeling agency, wow. agency, and he got attached to her from when she was working at the modeling agency because he was teaching. He would, you know, he would go around and do things like, you know, he, he taught at this modeling agency and there was pictures of him in the newspaper teaching all of the models in order to keep their figures sure, together. Sure. You know. He was a hairdresser. Right, right, right. He was a hairdresser. He was all he was all of these things. You know, he, he, he loved women and he loved to be around women and, you know, and, and he used whatever and he used his his wiles to do that. Um, but, yeah, his wife didn't agree to it. And that's, you know, and that's kind of suspicious. And. Um, and um, but there's a lot of suspicious stuff about his death. You know, Cooley says some things that turned out not to be true. You know, there's a lot of mystery around this thing. You know, a lot of people that he knew. In, well, well, several people he knew in his life after he died uh, ended up in the witness protection program. You know, uh, his his uh, his business partner ended up in, in the uh, witness protection program. And, and so did and, and, and so did Cooley. You know, I, I told you, I met Cooley, man, when I met Cooley, Cooley had a million dollar price on his head. And I met him out at a deli near Midway Airport and found that I couldn't sit watching the door because that's what he was doing. <laughs> I saw the video. So Cooley is the, the ex-mob lawyer who basically outed the mob in a book and then was in the witness protection program. I'm curious. Oh, not, not in a book. He was here like he was, man, he was, he's the one who took down fam Family yeah, Matters. Yeah. He, you know. Family Matters case take, taking down the uh, the uh, uh, the uh, Chicago outfit, you know, uh, Joy the Clown and all those guys. That was that was that, uh, that was Cooley. I, I don't know how you got a hold of him or got him for the interview, uh, but this the legacy of all this, which is kind of interesting, really quickly, is that there are basically two successors to the official Black Dragon Fighting Society. A guy named Ashita Kim, who was the first to come after Bob Calhoun. Um, but he kind of brushed, the, you know, that was more friendly. And then a William Aguilar, yeah. Agu Aguiar, who was in Fall yeah. River, Massachusetts. Yeah. And his was a little more, uh, his people were a little more aggressive. I think challenged Bob Calhoun to a death match. I know you've had, you've had run-ins with these guys. Uh, but the point of the story is, 
is that there this Count Dante succession is still very much alive, very active, uh, and and it's it's very interesting. You know, um, there's so much stuff we didn't get to, uh, including the fact that Dante even rolled his own cigarettes. The cigarettes were a promotional item he used that in his beauty parlor. He had a beauty parlor. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And you know, beauty parlors gave their, you know, they gave their clients, you know, uh, matches and 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 uh, matches and matchbooks with their logos on it. And that's what Cal Dante did. That's great. You ever come across any of those? Do you ever have any? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, guys in Fall River have, have, have like lots of them. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, and the last story I want to tell before we go out is in 1973. This is a great one. Um, Bruce Lee dies, and they were looking for another martial artist to, to join the movies. And this is kind of where Count Dante kind of jumped at this. They flew him out to Hollywood for a camera test. Uh, but he, he didn't pull any of his punches and injured several martial artists that resulted in the insurance getting pulled from the studio. Uh, did you find any validity in this? Is this a pretty true story? No validity in this. None, no, none at all? None at all. Nobody in LA has, nobody in LA at any studio has ever confirmed this. Really? It's a good story though. <laughs> no, but I do, I do know I have to add Variety Magazine from when he was advertising himself as a martial artist for movies. But I don't know the company that he was supposed to have, have auditioned for. I've never been able to find their existence. I've never been able to find anybody or any information of the company. I mean, here's what's exciting is on this on this interview, you signed the check to make this movie. I, I really hope. I mean, look, I've read a lot of your interviews. I've read a lot of stories about John, of John Key and Count Dante. Everyone that includes you says you're going to make the movie the next year. I hope that this is the one where it actually happens because I want to see this thing. Uh, <laughs> you and me both, right? <laughs> you know, I used to feel really bad about not making this film right away. But every time I go to a festival and I run into people who do documentaries and I run into somebody and I run at least two or three people that have said it's taken them 10, 15 years to make their documentary. You know, when you don't have the money, when you get started and you're on your own, you're just on your own. Dante was nice. Ken was nice to me when I was a kid. When I found out he didn't have a grave, because I wasn't, look, I had no idea I was going to do this film. What made me do the film is I had everybody telling me Count Dante was still alive, right? Not everybody, but several people were still telling me, Count Dante were telling me, he's still alive. I know, I saw him. I had dinner with him last year. So I went out to his grave to get a picture of his gravestone. I got his death certificate. I went out there to the grave to get a picture of the tombstone, and he didn't have a tombstone. I went in the office. I said, hey, this guy, John Keehan, here's his, here's his plot number, but there's no tombstone. Somebody stole it. Did, did you notice? Gwen goes in the book. She says, oh, no one ever put a stone on his grave. I said, but he's a veteran. How could he not have a stone? She said, nobody ever turned up to do anything. That's what started me to make the film. I said, this guy has done more in life than most people would ever do. People that live twice is, you know what I mean? He he did a whole lot of good because, you know, when you talk to people, I mean, when you talk to his first generations of students, you you can't say, you know, you, you can't talk bad about John Keehan because of the way he treated them. The way the black students, the, the old black guys who worked with him back in the 1960s when nobody else would, who he stuck by. Well, so now how can people, if people want to get in touch with you and they want to find out more about this, they want to see this documentary when it comes out, um, how, are you, I assume you're on social media. you got to be promoting this thing. Yeah, I'm on social media as Floyd Webb on Instagram and uh, on Facebook, just Floyd Webb Chicago, you know, or, or Floyd Webb. You, you can go to the searchforcountdante.com. Uh, there's a search for Count Dante uh, page on Facebook. Well, I'm going to have links to all this stuff on the website. I'm going to make it easy for people. And you can still donate to the documentary at the search for countdante.com. You got to stick that in and there. T-shirts. Wait, wait. We have T-shirts at the shirt for countdante.com. You can order <laughs> Count Dante T-shirts. That's not bad. Shirt. Hey, just like your great great grandfather, you are not a flunky. You are a fundraiser, and I respect that, Tell and you. I love uh, that. Uh, Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> you got exactly not a flunky. You are a fundraiser. Uh, well, this has been incredible. Count Dante, you know, and I'm starting to think is Floyd Webb too. Uh, you guys are both very interesting, deep, complex individuals that require quite a bit of untangling. Um, and you've done a great job with this with this story. And and I wish you all the best. I can't wait to see this documentary when it comes out. 
Um, so thank you so much for being on the show today, man. Really? Thank you for inviting me because this is kind of like a mile, you know, I mean, it's really like, like a milestone having this interview and have, you know, I mean, I agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> I broke it here, man. You know, like the, the email came while I was talking to you. That's amazing. Floyd. I mean, what are the odds of that? Uh, I'm so looking forward to it. Can't wait to see what your capable hands come up with when you release this thing, this search for Count Dante. Looking forward to it. And again, thank you for being on the show. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Well, I'm here to tell you right now, if you love this show, you've got to subscribe. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you don't have immediate access to those podcasting platforms, never fear. I got you covered. Go to fascinatingnouns.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you will find links to all of those platforms. So pick whichever one tickles your fancy. And if you want to follow us on social media, just go to the right, and you'll find it there. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages, all right there, bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And we got tons of supplemental material for this episode. Lots of pictures of Count Dante's exploits in Chicago, uh, plus a couple of documents and even all of the stuff for Floyd Webb. You got to get in touch with him. We got it all right there, fascinatingnouns.com. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to learn more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.